0: Good day, and welcome to Tractor Time, a podcast from Acres USA. We are recording from our offices in Austin, Texas. I'm Ryan Slabaugh, host of Tractor Time, and want to thank you for listening in today. Uh, this week, we're going to dip into the archives for a legendary discussion held decades ago at our EcoAg conference. Uh, but despite the age of this talk, uh, the topic of the discussion is still very much relevant. In fact, it's as relevant as ever. Charles Walters, Lee Fryer, and a crowd of engaged farmers spoke for nearly two hours about what they called an intellectual wake-up call. About the call to thoughtfulness when we think about farming and the food supply. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking this, I think we're very much still in need of this wake-up call. Recently we've seen cancer-causing pesticides approved, food regulations dropped, and Big Ag given an easy path forward to contamination. Uh, A recent anecdote, and I couldn't have planned this any better, proves this point. Uh, This week, in fact, just yesterday, I was challenged by a naysayer who was convinced that uh, the eco-agriculture techniques we teach about here at Acres USA was not actually any safer than conventional agriculture. His evidence was a photo we published of a man spreading rock phosphate on manure to help hide the stench and the fact that this man in the picture was wearing a mask over his face. This naysayer asked me, why does he have to wear a mask if it's so safe? Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you've ever smelled manure, then I probably don't have to explain why someone would wear a mask when working around a pile of it. It has little to do with safety. That said, I didn't question him on the fact. I knew what he was really asking. I gave him the speech that there are plenty of studies that show soil conditions and microbial life are much healthier when addressed in natural, ecological terms. I went on a bit and... Finished my argument, and luckily for me, he didn't have much of a reply except for something snide, a little dig about me being a hippie, something like that. It passed, and when it was over, I thought to myself, I sure hope Charles Walters would have been happy with what I just said. It's something I tell myself every day, working at Acres USA, or almost every day. Of course, it's impossible to live up to the standard he set, but it's a hell of a bar and the best measuring stick I have. As Charles said in his talk that will follow, I'll get to it eventually, I promise. If he had asked his father in 1945, are you an organic farmer? His father would have said, what's that? In less than a century, we've come far enough to forget how we have farmed for, for millennia, uh, for most of humanity's existence, and how new the introduction of industrial pesticides and herbicides are for farming, and how little we truly know about the massive effect it's had on our health, on our environment, and on our, on our food supply. Anyway, in the talk that will follow, Charles spoke to this point with the help of Lee Fryer and a few other farmers in the audience he called on. He will tell you that even today, the effort to, as he put it, to liberate the organic farmers goes on, and it goes on with truth on our side. That the challenge now is to return the burden of proof to the conventional agriculture systems, to those who want to coat our foods with poison, to prove that that practice is as safe as organic farming, and not the other way around. We hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time Podcast.
1: Yesterday, someone came up to me in the hall, and he said, well, here I am, because this is the only fun meeting left in the country. Well, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I guess it really is. But he told me he'd discovered an answer for Johnson grass. He says, you know, I come from southern Missouri, and we got these Ozarkians down there. And these are a hardy lot, and they make corn squeezins. And a lot of them are Corinthians. I said, Corinthians? I've heard of about everything of St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but I didn't know there was a sect like that. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, they're they're Corinthians, and they drink like a fish. (laughs) And I said, well, what about this Johnson grass? Oh, he says, we found an answer for that. You go up to the distillery, and you get the lousiest rot gut they got left that hasn't moved, and you cut it 50% with river water. And then you spray it on the Johnson grass. And those Corinthians will eat it down root and all. (laughs) I wish we could dispose of all of our problems that way, roots and all. But we can't. As Lee Fryer might say, Here we have found all the solutions to the pressing problems of the world, but they go right on being propounded as though we hadn't come up with any solutions at all. Now, there's a reason for this. And in examining that reason, we discovered the bond between economics and ecology. And this is the reason on our masthead and on our front page or on our master, we say: for agriculture to be economical, it has to be ecological. There is a connection between farm technology suitable to mankind and the distribution system suitable to the morality and ethics of mankind. Now, about a week ago, our Canadians to the north of us voted to extend the tenure in office of the great Brian. Mulroney. The issue was whether Canada should ratify an agreement with the United States to eliminate many farm trade barriers. A similar plan is now before GATT, GATT General Agreements of Tariff and Trade, in Switzerland, involving 96 countries. And it would seem at once apparent that the bottom line will have to be a price structure for basic storable commodities based on the lowest common denominator in international trade channels. And what does this mean for the family farmer in the United States? More than six out of 10 farmers are staying on the land because the wife is driving the school bus, there's off farm employment or something of that order. Fully 50% of those top to bottom, large to small, are expected to be processed in the bankruptcy. The 650,000 working commercial farms in the United States are to be cut in half, we are told, by our public policy advisors. It has been said that the United States, when it catches cold, Canada sneezes. And we might well add, Australia sneezes, and Argentine sneezes, and most of the rest of the producing world sneezes. Because everybody thinks that what we do is correct and they should follow suit. That's what the boys in Australia tell me. And yet, our great departing president tells us that the planetary system of the market will take over worldwide And deliver the greatest good to the greatest number of people. This has been the economist's dream of heaven ever since Adam Smith wrote the theory of moral sentiments. And later on his inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations in terms of its perpetuation. That's the full title of The Wealth of Nations. I'm not sure one guy wrote both the title and the book. Fortunately for us, the founding fathers didn't listen. Andrew Jackson didn't listen. George Washington was the only president of the United States who never finished grammar school. And it made no sense to him either. It remained for schoolmen of a later era who were educated beyond their capabilities to reclaim and to de- this myth and to deify it, and to give it a new no- nomenclature, Reaganomics, for instance, and sell it to people who ought to know better, the voters of the United States. And so the great Mulrooney and the great Reagan have set our course for us. But uh, we wonder, shouldn't we pause a moment? Shouldn't we recall that era in which J- Andrew Jackson drove the money changers out of the temple, Shouldn't we remember them all, if only for analysis? Because it was at the time of Andrew Jackson that John Stuart Mill wrote his scholarly, scholarly Principles of Political Economy, a two-volume treatise that examined the entire field of economics, rents, farm prices, wages, industrial prices, taxes, whatever, that debased forms of Say's law of markets still reign supreme as it does today. And if we read Gat and the U.S. treaty votes and the Canadian policies correctly, they will continue to reign. And yet we are forced to observe that international trade upsets the law of markets so routinely that for the common people to be an economist is to be some sort of a some sort of a fool. Mill did more than codify the academic thought of the hour. He brought out a principle all his own, one that has been regularly forgotten and regularly misplaced ever since. In effect, John Stuart Mill argued that distribution in an institutional world has absolutely nothing to do with economics. The things are there. They are produced. The farmers farm and the bins are filled. Mankind individually or collectively can do with them as they please on whatever terms, he wrote. Even what a person has produced all by himself on whatever terms, he cannot use unaided by anyone, he cannot keep unless by permission of society. Not only can society take it from him, but individuals could and would take it from him, except that we employ people for the purpose of preventing him from being disturbed of his properties. We learned this in the French Revolution. The farmer couldn't sit on his production, NFO style, and refuse to bring it to market. No, they couldn't. They came out and took it away from him. Once you've produced it, you've lost control. The rules by which we distribute are determined by the opinions and feelings of the ruling portion of a community. And they are very different in very different ages. And might still be more different if mankind so chooses. Now that essentially is the end of the quote. What Mill said was transparently obvious once it had been said. Never mind if it's the natural action of society to depress wages, close out farms, sell everything to the foreigner, or equalize profits or raise rents or whatever. If society does not like the natural results of free international trades, of shysters moving paper around the world and calling it grain, it has only to change them society can tax and subsidize it can expropriate and redistribute it can give away all its wealth to a king and a nobility and turn or it can turn the whole society into a gigantic charity ward it can give due heed to incentives or it can at its own risk ignore them it can put the lands in the hands of a few and in the hands of the absentee owner and the foreigner and relegate the many to abject poverty, forever on the verge of crime and revolt. Or it can maintain broad-spectrum distribution of land and income, and enjoy the fruits of stability. But whatever society chooses to do, there is no correct planetary system of the market. There are only men sharing their wealth as they see fit. Now, I'm not here to belabor this point because we're here to talk more about ecological agriculture. I want merely to point to the fact that society decides. For at the level where God governs, the law of matter and energy are in charge, as our speaker, Joe Goodavage, last night pointed out. The internationalists understand this, but they choose to ignore the laws of matter and energy in order to apply the benefits to their own end. There is no such thing as nation trading with each other or trading partners. These are all words invented on the copywriter's desk, like furry tongue and office hips and other maladies of mankind. Nations do not trade with each other. Companies trade across international borders, usually without reference to what they are doing to the countries involved. It has long been has been it has been some time since the nobles of Europe believed that they had accomplished the physical impossibility of perpetual motion, perpetual interest, simply by owning all the land and exacting tribute from the peasantry. And as we know, the historical showdown arrived. But now the new nobles have invented a more subtle force and form of tribute taking. It's come on as debt interest, compound interest, and all the institutional arrangements required to make the producing company con- the com- producing community share its income with the creditor. In ancient Rome, it was the custom of the wealthy families to summon a, sne- a seer, often an old hag who had convinced others that she had divine abilities to discern the proper course of action. And to do this, the hag would order the youngest and the prettiest slave girl summoned. Chalk would be administered to her fingertips. And then the luckless girl would be forced to drink a deadly poison. The patterns traced out on the floor by the girl's fingertips in her death agony became the script for the seer to read. We often pride ourselves on our sophistication, for surely we have outgrown such superstitions. We no longer study the gizzards of birds to determine public policy. We laugh at the worship of numbers, and we positively chortle at astrology. But do we really exhibit more wisdom? To be sure, the Reagan Mulroney myth no longer calls for the sacrifice of a single girl. Instead, the human sacrifice runs into the thousands and the millions. Farm production flows to the high markets of the world. Even if the producing nation starves, count those starving people in Africa and in the Philippines and the millions. Rip up the small plots in Asia. Employ the people at nine cents an hour labor. Ship the goods to Canada and the United States. And then let's manage the supply. For though for what you're seeing here and what I'm describing is a crime that goes beyond denunciation. There's a sorrow that weeping cannot symbolize. Tear down your cities, intoned William Jennings Bryan, and they will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms and grass will grow in every city in the country. First, the Committee for Economic Development discerned that we needed about 600,000 farms. Now, they want 300,000. And finally, they want one agricultural unit per county. This policy has already brought us to the brink. Now, you may wonder, what has all this got to do with ecological farming? I suppose the, ab- le- the level of abstraction invoked will contain the answer to that question. We've reported to you about the sick technology we used to reduce the number of farms to 20 by 2,400 a week during the early 60s. First, the blacks were dispossessed in the South so they could no longer vote. Imports from low-cost nations invaded so the farmers would have to respond by going broke or by getting bigger and more efficient and managing more acres with a technology that didn't belong. And when the farms became too big for the available label resource, this devilish technology came on in greater force with the blessings of the land-grant colleges, Extension, and the United States Department of Agriculture, all acting as unpaid salesmen for the chemical companies. There isn't a person in its audience that isn't cognizant of the consequences. And that's why we're here. We have to survive we have to stop the hemorrhaging in the countryside. But mere survival is not a worthy goal. We should seek to prevail. And I suggest to you that at the end of World War, World War II, not one person in a thousand foresaw the evaporation of the mighty British Empire. And yet within two decades, the collapse was complete and the mismantlement had taken place. I suggest that the behemoths in the countryside, whether owned by Japan or by Fortune 500 people, are situated in the same precarious position, and that those of us who are still alive within our lifetime will see the changing of the guard. And so our goal is clear. The vacuum will be filled by a new technology, one that works with nature, not against her. We will prevail because nature is on our side. She is patient and forgiving. She will repair herself from the ignoble treatment of man in spite of the tremendous physical capacity for destruction. Now our little conference deals with the how and the why. Our days will be moderated. By Lee Fryer, who will introduce several speakers to you today and several panelists. Now, Lee is not what I would call a for- formal man. He will rightly roll up his sleeves, take the situation by the nape of the neck and the seat of the pants, and shake out a result. This evening, we'll hear from Dr. Phil Callahan and Peter Tompkins. Both are writers, Phil is a scientist. Who has just published his walk in the sun, but more important, he has published in the credentialed scientific literature what we mentioned obliquely last night—the introduction of certain wavelengths to annihilate the AIDS virus. Thompson, Tompkins is the author of *The Secret Life of the Soil*, which will be available early next year, probably in February. Ladies and gentlemen, I've appreciated your attention, and I thank you very much. Communication this morning, transmitted at incredible speed from Australia by fax. Normally a letter takes me a month or so, a package three to six months. This is addressed to the conference, to Lee Fryer, and really to all of you here. It says Dove Rule Media Limited is the organizer of EchoAG 89, the first Australia New Zealand Ecological Conference and Trade Exposition. The conference is to be held in Brisbane, Australia on February 6 and 7, 1988, and Lee Fryer is to be the keynote speaker. Well, they have 88. They mean 89. They They made a mistake. (laughs) Ecological farming is an exciting study because it draws attention to the need for all people, not just farmers, to be interested in our food supply. It is good that the people involved in the marketing and processing of our food products are taking up the challenge to deliver pure, wholesome food. Consumers are becoming more discerning and government and industry leaders who administer and regulate food-growing industries also see the need for change. We congratulate Acres USA on your 1988 correct, National Conference and wish you all the best. We wish to invite all of you at your National Conference to consider participating in EcoAg 89 next February in Brisbane. Our travel agents would be pleased to organize group tours and sightseeing packages, etc., etc. I was in Brisbane earlier this year. It is absolutely beautiful weather in February because it's kind of uh, the edge of summer. You can see where MacArthur and his staff roughed it during World War II <laughs> while you were there. The Australians took great interest in our visit. They fell out at every point along the way, required us to make talks and to visit with them. And since then, I've shipped a great many cases of an Acres USA primer into Australia. So anybody who wants further information on the conference, you can contact us. Now I'd like to ask Ron Brackey if he is here. Ron, I would yield to you five minutes to explain that curious headline on the front page of Acres USA flap story
2: Well, thank you. Thank you, Chuck. I guess he just give me 6 minutes to explain that. My name is Ron Brecky. I'm a farmer. I farm 7 miles south of Fargo, North Dakota. I am a supporter of the Flap Organization. I've also been appointed a special investigator for the FLAP organization, and I investigate dishonest activity in the field of banking. <laughs> FLAP, I don't get much sleep. As a matter of fact, 20 minutes ago, I was told I had five minutes to talk to you all. FLAP stands for Family Farm Foreclosure Legal Assistance Project Incorporated. Once we got involved in, in researching legal avenues for farmers to follow in the their quest to keep their farms and keep producing, the management of FLAP, which are volunteers, felt that they should incorporate to limit liability on their part. However, ultimate liability always rests with those in being. FLAP has been in existence since the fall of 82 and has grown to a group of about 9,000 supporters at this point in time. Do you notice how I didn't flinch? (laughs) Actually, I know what it feels like back in the olden days to be considered a gunslinger. And every time you pull into town, you look around and there's always somebody drawing on you. And you get used to it after a bit, but you know sooner or later somebody's going to outdo you. However, what is right is right and what's wrong is wrong. The FLAP organization has a headquarters. The president of it is Monty Hogan, Milner, North Dakota. It has record keeping. It has private investigative reports, and these may be at point A, B, C, or D. But the gathering of information and the disseminating of it to all is the important part of FLAP. What is the real problem with the economy? That was the job that had to be figured out. And it's pretty simple once you figure it out. The problem with the economy is that we've got a little over $10 trillion in public and private debt. And every one of those notes that were signed are demanding to be paid in the portion of M1 of the money supply, which is Federal Reserve notes. And there are only 360 billion of that in circulation. That's the core of the problem. To create capital in a debt capital system, one must sign a note. That's the creation of capital right there. As soon as your ink is dry on the note, that's the creation of that much capital. A mortgage is only a public disclosure of what is backing that creation of capital. Now, 28 out of every 29 loans extended in this country, no one circulated a medium of exchange on. You could say no one received anything for it. However, that would be a harsh statement. Most have gotten consideration, but most have not gotten consideration From the parties who are the beneficiaries of the mortgage and so we have contracted with the devil and we are seeking redemption and the only way you can get redemption is as follows you must execute a new note and a new mortgage and see to it that medium of exchange is circulated off of that note then it is brought forth in the economy, and you can, through blood, sweat, and tears, gather and redeem. That's the problem. People in this country do not know that we are operating under contract law, and basically, in all civil process, exclusively under contract law. It's of the contract, by the contract, and for the contract. And the baby M case spells out that now even the pound of flesh is subject to contract. And so, when you're placed in a non-performing position, you must rewrite the contract. And, of course, the alternative to the contract always exists, the right to pay. All that circulates in a debt capital system is promises to pay. There's nothing else in circulation. And so you pay a promise to pay with another promise to pay. But you must change the terms and conditions in the contract to suit the economic conditions of this time because these conditions are not of your making. You were deceived when you signed the contract. You were not told they had control of the circulating medium of exchange that you had to get your hands on to repay. That's the core of the problem. FLAP has piles and piles of information, all valuable. We discard the unvaluable stuff. We circulate what works. And, of course, we're all aware, because of the news media campaign, that there are 90,000 notices that went out to farmers by the Farmers' Home Administration. I'm part of the group that saw to it that the court order Is in place and still in place, barring FMHA from illegally foreclosing. That's the basis of FLAP. That's where FLAP got its feet. And it's been running ever since to tell you all that don't believe everything that you read. You must check the facts. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ron. It looks to me like somebody's going to have to eat an awful lot of write-down. Is that what you're saying? And even having consumed this write-down, you're still going to have to cash flow the farm. And you're not going to be able to cash flow the farm with $90 an acre in goods from the devil's pantry. That's the connection. you got to change the technology. At this point, I'd like to turn this program over to Lee Fryer. I had a great big long spiel here we're supposed to go through, but I think I'm going to skip that and let you handle it, Lee. And uh, let, let's let's put this on a audience podium participation basis and get some fireworks going. All right.
3: Chuck Walters and our friends from North Dakota have demonstrated again that the Acres USA community is possibly the only valid, intelligent voice today out of rural America and out of agriculture. And I foresee, as the crisis deepens, not only in rural America, but also our entire economy, that the voice of acres may be called upon in these broader fields that have been discussed in the last uh, little over half an hour. Uh, I'm going to telescope my opening remarks here so that we can gain a little time. I'm going to report mainly the origin of this meeting today, partly fiction and partly fact. Uh, And much of what we say today is, will be in those categories, and, and God only knows which is which. The, uh,
1: <laughs>
3: Chuck Walters and I, he'll remember this vividly, sat under a eucalyptus tree. Wasn't it a eucalyptus? Chuck, say yes. yes. <laughs> the, uh,
4: <laughs>
3: three, three months ago, and we said this time at the Acres Conference we will recognize the under-recognized fact, and that is that most of the wisdom is out in the audience. And the people that stand up here and talk are mainly for the purpose of stimulating the synapses in your brains. So we decided this time that we're going to have a, a totally open and free extemporaneous ad hoc discussion. You notice how Chuck adhered to that closely in his presentation the uh, (laughs) everything he said about John Stark Mill is is what he dreamed about last night and uh, so (laughs) I am going to uh, briefly introduce it this way I am old enough so that I was present in King Street in Madison Wisconsin in 1932 when Herbert Hoover came down that street with his cavalcade of about three automobiles behind him and was jeered when he was running for president. And Milo Reno, and who in this audience is old enough to remember Milo Reno? Well, we have, we have quite a few old people here, Ted. That's in <laughs> <laughs> The farm holiday organization in the early 1930s and in the uh, Depression years was one of the most articulate, clear voices of that time. There was a hiatus until we came to the next chapter with respect to Acres USA in spring 1966. I was an assistant administrator of the Farmers Home Administration in Washington, D.C., And I, for one, was quite frightened, as frightened as a bureaucrat can get, because I was tendered an analysis of farm debt for my signature that indicated that the condition of agriculture was entirely solvent, and I refused to sign it. And that led to step one, two, three, and four that got me out the front door of USDA. But before that happened, Chuck Walters and I met in Kansas City when he was with the National Farm Organization. And is Harry Rash here? Harry, you vividly remember? Harry Rash, stand up. He's the only banker here that I know that's an honest banker. (laughs) (laughs) Vincent Rossiter, who I wish was here today, Vincent Rossiter and Harry Rash and Charlie Walters and I had this historic session in Kansas City in spring 1966 and we recognized at least what was going to happen that is now happening today and that is the wipeout of the next hundred thousand farms by foreclosure. (coughs) I was offered a job by these guys that day and I was wise enough to turn it down. (laughs) Partly because the problem even then was insoluble. We're here, we are here 22 years later today. And under that eucalyptus tree, Chuck and I decided that we would expunge the printed schedule. And we're going to have it almost wholly extemporaneous addressing ourselves to the basic matter that has been printed partly in our, uh, as our task today, quotation marks. We're going to address the matter of cleaning up America's polluted food supply system. I don't think there's a person sitting in this room that does not believe it's becoming almost dangerous to eat and drink the normal food and water in our country. We're going to address that matter, and we're lucky because we have today, partly sitting on this platform, we have honestly America's... Most experienced, trained technologists and scientists in this field sitting on this platform. The rest of the wisdom is out there. (laughs) And it doesn't speak very much for these guys up here that they're the most talented because there aren't very many people around that are talented. (laughs) I am very briefly going to hit the high spots, and uh, Ted Warren told me I was cheating this morning because it's printed in your centerfold in acres. Everything I was going to say is printed right here. And there's my picture, and Chuck always picks out the ugliest ones he he can find (laughs) so that you'll be pleasantly surprised when you see me, see? Very, very briefly, and you've heard this before, my daddy and all of his grand people were fed on organic foods. I was fed on organic foods. If you had walked up to my father in 1940 and said, are you an organic farmer? He would have said, what's that? And this is the key to a sound system of agriculture. If it's sound, the farmers don't even know it is sound or why it's sound. They simply do it. Uh, This afternoon, we're going to be absolutely thrilled with meeting the representatives uh, in this meeting today from the Pueblo tribes of New Mexico. Those people have been farming that land down there for 400 years. These people are going to tell you a little bit about that. They have been intensely organic. And they didn't even know it, and they hardly know it today. When they invited me down there two, two months ago to meet with them, the leading person, one of the most eloquent people I've ever listened to, he said, because we were so far behind, we find that we are far ahead today. LAUGHTER Did anyone have to explain to them the basic principles of organic farming? Did anyone have to explain to them the the analysis and certification of their crops for sale? They've been doing this for 300 years. This is partly what we're going to do today. And as Harry McCormick over here will testify, two of our uh, ancillary... Assignments these days is to liberate organic farmers. Is that right, Harry? Say
1: yes.
3: (laughs) For these reasons, the organic farmers have been caught in a trap. My father farmed at a time when America had 6,200,000 diversified farms, most of which had livestock and poultry, and the fertilizer supplies for the organic system were absolutely low cost and they were on the farm and nearby. To be an organic farmer up until 1950 was the easiest and the lowest cost thing to do. Then in the ultimate wisdom of me and my associates in the Department of Agriculture, in the next 20 years, we we wiped out first 2 million farmers, then we wiped out another million farmers, and we destroyed, the Fertilizer Supply System for Organic Agriculture in the United States. This was about the time that G.I. Rodale, and you happen to have, you can guess who he was on the, on the platform here, we happen to have G.I. Rodale's private physician, believe it or not, sitting on the platform here, right or left. Which one was it, Ted? And, <clears throat> and about this time, Mr. Rodale, feeling very gloomy about the destruction of organic farming in the United States, promulgated the organic farming magazine. It was first organic farming magazine. And described the guides and principles for the organic movement. And these, as you know, were that organic wastes were to be the principal sources of fertilizer and maintaining life in the soil. Progressively, as the organic movement grew, the fertilizer supplies disappeared. And the very principles and guides for being an organic farmer became totally impaired. In California, the organic farming groups got a law passed in the state legislature stating that a manufactured fertilizer could not be used to grow organic crops. We all know this is idiocy. When you move the manure piles 500 miles away, you have to process that manure if you're ever going to get back into the farming system. So what we have seen happen now in the last 30 years is the destruction of the feasibility of the organic system, while meantime permitting the petrochemical system to take over almost totally, uh, instead of us being organic like my father used to be. What happened next was, and I should stop right now and ask somebody to tell us, the demonstration that the petrochemical system of farming is fatally defective. This was not recognized until, about 10 years ago. The petrochemical system of farming is defective because, A, it kills humus in the soil and washes it away. It destroys the fertility of the soil. Number two, it pollutes land, water, and the foods. Number three, by using excess soluble nitrogen and other nutrients in excess amounts, it pollutes the water systems and totally upsets the ecosystem. Number four, it becomes excessively expensive. And if you don't believe that, just try to continue to follow the, the, the guides for pest control on your farm. This afternoon, we're going to have Jerry Bryan tell about the overhauling of the system in West Texas to overcome that problem. What I'm saying here is we have crippled the organic farming system, in the United States, so it can't work anymore, and produce the crops in a cost-efficient way. So half the organic farmers are cheating. I don't blame them. I mean, most Americans cheat. Uh, it was, when I worked for the government, <laughs> when I worked for the government, a study was made and found that 92 percent of us cheated on our travel vouchers. I would like to ask this audience, if it wasn't so compromising, anyone here that hasn't cheated to hold up their hand and say...
2: <laughs>
3: we would drive, drive them out the door. <laughs> so, within the last year, as our Canadian friend... By the way, he hasn't uh, protested yet. As our Canadian friend over here is going to demonstrate to you, in the last year, and finally the food industry is recognized, Americans demand organic foods. And you organic people out there, how are you going to produce those foods without going broke and satisfy the demands even of Safeway stores and Giant Food and Raley's and all the rest of them? And that those are the problems we're going to address today. And for just a little while, we're going to lay aside our sham and our, our rigid, sanctimonious perfection, and we're going to be practical for a few hours. We're going to begin to describe a system of agriculture that can work. And I'm going to offer you one of the keys right now. We have a great free country, relatively free, and people have the right to go to the store and buy whatever they want, and they, they vote with their dollars. We can have two or three organic systems in the United States. We can have a gourmet organic system and it can follow the biodynamic and other kinds of systems. It can be traditionally organic and certified as such. And if that one is too costly, we can have a modified organic system. We can have an ecological organic system. But I'll tell you one thing for my uh, my clientele that, that communicate with me, they won't buy the terms transitional. They say transitional to what? They say sustainable and sustainable how. And regenerative, and they say that was what uh, the Rodale people dreamed up to, to tell people they were when they didn't even know what that meant. And But this is the box that we're in. Do you people out there feel that we can face this problem for a few hours today? Say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Demo- <been> training. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy in action. <laughs> With no further ado, I'm going to introduce—and this is not in the order of excellence, unfortunately. <laughs> and from now on out, anybody, anybody that reads the speech, we're going to have—Harry, will you help to take him to the door? And we have one rule. If you are, if you are competent— to pose the question, anybody at any time can rise up and ask any of these people anything they want to ask them, but you damn well better be interesting. Ted, <laughs> 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 rise and shine. This, this is Dr. Howard E. Ted Warren. As I told you, he was J.I. He was Rodillo's uh, associate and, and physician. Back when he helped, he helped G.I. Rodale to plat, plot and plan the Mayo's plots. He got disgusted with being a doctor, I think, and uh, became a multiple-discipline scientist of three or four kinds. Uh, he's been associated with us for about 15 years, and uh, he's one of America's great microbiologists, agronomists, and marine biologists, etc. And he's going to make a brief statement and invite all your questions you want to ask him all day.
5: After that, how can I say anything? (laughs) Actually, we started into the organic field. I don't like the use of the term organic field. I'm particularly prone to use the word biological agriculture because everything we do really is biological. We started in because... In some of the medical studies that we were doing, we found when we analyzed the blood and the urine of patients that there was a deficiency of many of the minerals, some of the vitamins, and some of the unsaturated fatty acids, particularly. Now, this was supposed to have been an affluent society where we were supposed to have all the food we needed. So naturally, as a scientist, my curiosity was piqued, and I wanted to find out why. At that time, I was fortunate enough to have joined the Robinson Foundation in New York, and we had 36 laboratories across the country, a $2.5 million research budget, and back in the 50s, that was a fairly sizable sum of money. And we started doing broad studies on masses of the population. And from there, we started going back to the animals, the farm animals, the leisure animals like the horse. And all of a sudden, I began to realize why the people that raised horses and raced horses were using Canadian oats. And it was because of the very high mineral content of those oats. From there, we went to the vegetation. And one of the things we did with Rodale was to have crops grown organically and by regular fertilization. And then we did studies on the vitamin content of the particular vegetation. And you can rest assured that those that were properly raised had a much higher vitamin content than the ones raised by normal fertilization. But we also found the problems in the plants as well, that they were having to adapt to survive because of conditions. So, therefore, the ultimate end of the search ended with the soil. We analyzed soils all over the world. There are not very many civilized countries in the world whose soils have not been analyzed. And there, I think, we came up with the final answer. We have been demineralizing the soils for so many years, and no attempt has been made to replace these minerals, other than with the normal NPK, some lime, and maybe a few of the others that might be available. But putting these materials into the ground does not make them necessarily available to the plant. It's the, as I call it, the greatest non-unionized workforce in the world in the soil that does the job for us, the microorganisms. Here we have the most fantastic area of capability. The microorganisms are able to fix nitrogen from the air. If they decide we have too much nitrogen in the ground, they break it back in and turn it back into nitrogen again. They take the detritus of one season, convert it back into the fertilizers of the next, and the formation of the soil structure. They have been man's greatest ally and in some cases, his worst enemy. The ones with the black hats, they're the enemies, and they're the ones that cause the diseases. But fortunately, they're in the minority. The majority are those that wear the white hats, and those are the good guys. And they do the things that make us function far more efficiently, if we will allow them to. Unfortunately, what we have been doing over the many years is to prevent their functioning to the efficiency which will give us the results that we want. I'll never forget when hydroponics first came out. I thought I was the smartest thing that came down the pike. I had some formulas. So I put them together and I started to grow tomatoes. And I'm going to tell you I grew some of the most beautiful tomatoes you ever saw in your lives. And then the day came and they were ripe and they were ready to eat. And it was the prettiest red-colored water I think I've ever eaten. <laughs> I learned at that time, and this goes back to the 40s now, that that just isn't the answer. There are many other things that go along with it. Fortunately, I, whether I was smart enough or stupid enough at the time, we analyzed them for the moisture content. And it was much higher than that grown by natural methods. So, we realized from this that the microorganisms that are normally grown in the soil along with the uh, necessary plants are really a symbiotic combination. We have been building up in the soils all over the world an excessive amount of pesticides Fortunately, the good Lord and his infinite wisdom also put classes of microorganisms on this earth that were capable of breaking these down to innocuous compounds that would create no problems. You hear these terrible stories about PCBs and dioxin and how nothing can touch them and DDT, nothing can touch it. Nothing is further from the truth. We have just finished a series of tests up in Canada with one of the government bodies in which microbiologically we destroyed dioxin in four weeks. In the soil, we did it in less than two weeks. The hydrocarbon uh, pollution in, in the soil, that goes in a matter of days. It's simply a matter of We have to learn to use what we have and use it properly. If we do not give the proper format, the proper environment for the microorganisms to do their jobs, then they will never do the job for us. It's like everything else. If I put you into a hotel room and forget how to turn on the heat and the weather outside is cold, You're not going to have a very pleasant evening. You're going to sit there shivering. But if I have all the warmth you need and I have the proper amount of everything, you're going to have a comfortable stay. Well, this is what happens with the bugs. And incidentally, my license plate says bug Doc. And if you don't think this, stirs people up. (laughs) As far as I'm, I'm concerned, we have never learned to properly utilize the microorganisms. Uh, I've seen farmers that uh, complained to me and they said, oh I bought a product for, for uh, inoculating my seeds or uh, f- doing something to my field and it was supposed to do certain things and I didn't see anything happen. And if you look back and you examined what was taking place, the soil was improperly prepared for what the microorganisms were go- going to do. As an example, if you're interested in nitrogen fixation, and this is something that every one of us should be really interested in, there are a large group of microorganisms that are capable of fixing large amounts of atmospheric nitrogen. And when you figure we've got about 30,000 tons over every acre in the atmosphere, and you you realize how much money you have to spend for nitrogen fertilizers, it behooves you to start saying, hey, how can I transfer some of that up there down to here? Plants can't do it. The animals can't do it. <coughs> Pardon me. And the humans can't, uh, can't do it. But the bacteria, because they have a particular enzyme system, are able to fix this nitrogen, converting it first to ammonia and then into nitrates. So it can be used by, uh, by the plants if the pH of the soil is too acid if it's below around 6.2 they will grow but they will not fix nitrogen the the pH of the soil has to be adjusted so it's at least 6.8 to 7.8 for maximum efficiency that's why a lot of the effect you see when you lime the soil is to allow certain organisms to function more efficiently As I said earlier, if we're getting too much nitrogen in the soil, rather than washing it down and creating serious nitrate problems in the water supplies, these little bugs just break it back again into the element and back into the atmosphere again. We have so many things that these microscopic workers are doing for us that all we have to do now is to learn to utilize them, and you will find that what you will get from it is not only good economics, but it's also highly productive. Now you can shoot away with all the questions you want, Lee. It's you know They tell me they can't hear you back in the back. Do you want to talk into that? Gee, I thought I thought they could hear me any place. <laughs> We're ready for questions, so fire
4: away. The, uh, chemical or the government
5: approach. Well, basically, of course, J.I. died. That's the that's the motivating factor. And uh, his son co- uh, coming up and some of his co-workers are the ones that are running the magazine. And I don't think they have the fire and brimstone that J.I. had, that's all. And, of course, they took organic farming and gardening and they broke it down to organic gardening and the new farm. You can't separate these things. They're all one. Next. When you speak of insufficient minerals, uh, John Hammaker wrote extensively of using ground, glacial gravel, or other white based gravel to improve the mineral base of the soil. Do you think that would work? Do, he spoke specifically of grinding it to small enough where it would have enough
4: surface area to allow a lot of roof of factory to work on it.
5: Well, now you use the term wants to know if you grind up gravel can you get the proper nutrients from it? My answer to that is very simple. Gravel is essentially dirty sand. Uh, In Jersey, where I live, Jersey gravel is only used for fill. That's about all it's good for. If you're talking about granite rock phosphates and things like this, and the answer is yes. Uh, When I was on the Research Council of the National Fertilizer Solutions uh, Association, we did a lot of research at that time on calcium availability using limestone. And we found out that the finer the grind, the faster the assimilation. If you put the normal kernel size calcium onto the soil. Most of it is not going to be used till next year. It takes that amount of time for the organisms to break it down and make it ready for assimilation. If you grind it extremely fine, that's up into the three, four hundred mesh size, and you suspend that in water, then it's going to be absorbed very, very rapidly. It's almost an instantaneous thing. So if you if you redefine your term rather than gravel, specific uh, sources like rock, uh, the rock uh, phosphate and granite dust and that sort of thing. Yes, size has a lot to do with its ability to be assimilated. Let's, but
3: Let's uh, we'll shift to, to Don here for his statement, and then uh, we'll open up for total questions. Good enough. Don, hey. you're on your own, my boy. Let me, oh. let me introduce, let a introduce, introduce Don. There. Uh, by the way, anyone back there have any problem hearing? Uh, incidentally, uh, these uh, initial persons, resource people, are going to make their statements, and uh, in essence, the, uh, each one of them has their specialties, and we will then divide up the questions between them, and we want you mainly to get acquainted with them in these statements now. Can you, everybody in the back, can you hear now? Okay, Don. You lost your red oh, just
1: be a little
3: closer to the To this one here. Yeah. Both of them. One. This one here is okay, huh? <coughs> Don Schrieffer is recognized, I believe, as being the most available, competent uh, field agronomist, in the field of ecological horticulture in the United States, possibly. Now, uh, it's not competitive with anybody else, but he just is a person. He's the author of From the Soil Up and a, a, has a very extensive knowledge of these matters. Uh, Don, will you make a
4: statement here so people can get acquainted with you? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Lee uh, said, like, uh, first, I, I need to make an announcement to someone, too. Is Ron Brown in the crowd? Would, Ron, would you stand up a minute? <coughs> Okay, he's here. His wife wants to make sure that I that I made sure that he attended all the sessions. <laughs> uh, Ron is a is a relatively large farmer from the DeMott area, and Ron and I work together. We worked together for several years on his production management system, and uh, you should get acquainted with Ron. He's got some interesting things he can talk about. Okay, now, so what I'm going to do real briefly. Uh, he said he wanted two minutes a week ago, so I had two minutes well prepared, and I had a short night and a long day. So then he told me this morning that I had uh, two hours here. So uh, <laughs> I had to crank up my, uh, my speaking spring here a little bit. But what I'll just briefly do is, is give you a little bit of my philosophy. And, uh, and, and what is interesting here is that through this Acres conference, all the way through it, there will be many philosophies that will be brought forward. Um, You will agree with some, you won't agree with others. Uh, I don't agree with everything I hear, nor does everyone agree with everything I say, and that's the way it should be. Uh, But I want to make a statement or two, to my beliefs here at least, and that is, uh, first of all, when we talk about the chemical industry, uh, I think we have to recognize that we are, as human beings, uh, I kind of rationalize it this way anyway, we are no different underneath our core, our extra core of brain cells than, than a common animal. We are—we uh, have one major instinct, as far as I'm concerned, and I think that major instinct is the instinct to survive. And I think everything that we do, or or participate in, can be uh, analyzed in this ability, or this willingness, or desire to survive. Now, one of the survival techniques in in an organized society of any kind like the United States is money money we relate to survival because it, it has it is a thing that brings us everything we need or think we need and so therefore we would expect uh, that rather than a master plan a deceit we would rather I would rather expect or at least it's more comfortable to view that the chemical industry uh, propagated or developed out of the desire to make money. And we must understand that people will go to any extremes to make money, you know, whether they're right or wrong doesn't always enter into the picture. But I think what our task is here at people like Acres Conference is to understand that basically, go back to the facts, understand that we are dealing primarily totally with what we might refer to as a soil plant system, period. That's what it is. And all we're trying to do is to understand the soil plant system and develop uh, a foundation of understanding of this system. And we never should talk soils alone or plants alone, should we? It must always go together. And so therefore, what this conference is about is to bring about a good understanding and an ongoing understanding of this system. And what I think we have to be very careful of is that, which we are, that we must make certain that our knowledge is based on understanding. And particularly when we pass on information, any of us speakers up here talking, or you talking to your neighbor or whatever, I think how important it is that we understand what we're talking about then we can pass it on with confidence and we don't perpetuate ignorance. And what I think this conference is all about is to eliminate ignorance in this field that we're dealing with. Because there has been a lot of it out there. There still is. We're all ignorant. But let's not purposely perpetuate it. Let's sort it out and keep the facts and throw out the garbage is what I'm saying. And I think this is important. Now, what I think that in our philosophy, we judge, for example, to make my point, we judge the fertility of a soil by a crop's response to that fertility. And what we further believe is that we should be growing plants genetically normal. Now, so when, when we say genetically normal, then we're saying, I'm saying at least in my view, that if a plant, I believe if it had perfect nutrition, that it would have perfect yield. But the problem is here that what is normal, what is genetically normal in a plant, what is perfect nutrition, what is perfect yield, we simply don't know. But but we do know a few things and we're grossly ignorant of others. For example, we we do have a pretty good understanding of elemental needs of the plant. Now, that's one thing that we have been working on for years and years and years, and we can name them, you know, the essential elements. We don't always know the relationships, interrelationships, racials, and things like that, but we do know that they need certain elements. All right, now we, we know that. But probably what is most important is that we don't understand the, 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 this, this soil system And and we fail to recognize in our practices over the years that we must deal with plant nutrition in the whole realm of totalness, which deals with chemical, physical, and biological management. And you know as well as I know, we concentrate a lot on physical, we concentrate a lot on chemical, but we have done very, very, very little with biology. So what has resulted is that we are farming now across the land, as though the soil is only a container to put in chemicals like the hydroponics he was talking about. It is only a container to dump in chemicals and it is only a place further to anchor the roots of the plant. And as a result it has been biologically neglected totally and so our soil becomes less alive and becomes we we might say deader or more dead, however you want to put it. And the longer we do this the longer and the more difficult will be the resurrection. Uh, we, can, we can bring the soil back from near death, but I'm not too sure. The longer we do this, you see, the humus goes, the buffering capacity goes, and everything else, so it must be turned around. Now, so, the, 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 uh, the, the soil life is the problem, and why is it a problem? It is very simply a problem. Now, I don't, con- I don't totally buy And I don't think anyone does, if you really think about it. I don't totally buy that it's the commercial fertilizer that's killing our soil. I think the problem is, I think at least where we got to start thinking is, that these do the soil no good under the conditions that we're farming. They keep the life down, but the major problem is, as I see it, as I think it through, is a simple fact that we do not feed the organisms in the soil. We totally neglect them. We think we can go out there and grow soil life on corn stalks. I don't believe that. We can grow certain funguses, things like that, but we certainly can't get the whole show on the road with just lignaceous residues like that. So, so we are not we are not feeding them. Now, what we believe very strongly is that we have to start thinking in terms of feeding the soil microbes, and so we got to get a few terms in our in our thinking. And what we like to talk about is what we call the green effect or the new ground effect. And this is where we're missing the boat. Now we put in fertilizers and what the problem is we're putting in too much for the conditions. And you can put in too much of anything. You can put on too much manure. You can put on too much compost. Anything can be overdone. So we got to keep everything in perspective. But our problem is very, very simple, that we are not tending to the life in the soil because we're literally starving them to death. So we get just a few working, and that's all. The rest are dormant. So that's the way I kind of view it. And, and I think... It's important that, 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 that we under, that we get a little bit of a handle on it, whether you think exactly like that or not, but think it through so that we can start defining problems. And, and I prefer to, 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 to first, number one, define problems. I'm gonna talk a little bit about this tomorrow. Define the problems, but make damn sure that we define them. And we come up with some real problems. What are the problems? They're one, two, three, and so on. Then, let's work towards solutions of to these problems all together and and seriously work toward them and I'm going to tell you when you do it in that way there's no room for bitterness there's no room for blame but there's a lot of room for excitement okay so
0: You've been listening to Tractor Time Podcast from Acres USA. I'm Ryan Slabaugh. I just wanted to thank you for joining us this week. Next week, we're going to be having a discussion with the American Farmland Trust. A few folks are stopping by our office. They're based in D.C., actually, and do a lot of advocacy work for farmers around the country. It should be an interesting discussion, and we'll let you know when it's up and ready to be downloaded. So thanks again for joining us, and have a great week ahead.